Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. After this recording, you will be able to hear information about our Australian and New Zealand tour and also find out who won a box of books this week. Hello, and welcome to Josie and Robin's uh, Book Shambles. Hello. Uh, What an interesting time we are participating in as uh, the human race at the moment. Well, we should say we're recording this. Obviously, it's it's going to go out considerably later. We're recording this about 24 hours uh, before the US um, go to the polling booths. And uh, it's a very, very strange time. So we're going to try and do the happiest podcast possible because something that we have said over and over again, and I was talking about this last night on stage, and it's our catchphrase. And beautifully, it was used at uh, my friends Lindsay and Nathan, the name day of their child, that moment from God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, when Kurt Vonnegut says... God damn it, you've got to be kind. So that's what the podcast is about. It's about books and it's also saying, be kind. If you see a busker and you've got a spare 50 pence, even if you're doing a song or she's doing a song you don't like, I'll put 50 pence in. If you're going to miss one of your Northern Line trains, you've got, a, oh, look, someone with a pushchair, but I'll have to wait an extra four minutes to go to Edgeware. Fuck it. Just help them with the pushchair. The kindness is the only revenge we've got at the moment. Use your kindness well and mean it. We are joined by Matt. <laughs> that- I don't know how that lecture on kindness got so angry. It is an angry. <laughs> lecture because you've got to yeah it's pugilistic kindness it's kind of it's kindness but it's kindness as a weapon it's a kindness to say don't be cruel don't don't you know all of those ways that you're taking out your anxiety and your distress and your belief you haven't got what you want emergency says optimism is a weapon but but and if all else fails be silly there you go now i love arts emergency it's a great thing thanks mate i think i i I should do more for it thanks guys (laughs) i think robin should as well uh, we're joined by Natalie Seema, who is a st- well was a stand-up. Yeah. Are you still? Def- do you, would Once you, a stand-up, do you, is it over? You know, I think that too. And funny enough, I've just started up a, a comedy night near my house just to do a little bit of stand-up, but just a little bit, like a little bit of hobby. And, and but it's good on your terms as well. When it's your it. night, it's like my gaff, my rules. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. I just, I genuinely want to put it on because I live in Hernhill. It's a really nice area. And I think that, that I'm now, I'm very much like pro South London. And I just think that it would be a nice place to have a comedy night. Just a cheap one. No one gets paid, mm-hmm. but there's enough comics around there to like come and do some new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but I don't want to clutter up the circuit anymore. I think by the end I wasn't loving it. And people were like, God damn it, it's so hard to get a gig. And I'd be like, I, I shouldn't have gigs. Ha. I shouldn't. Well, that, that's, yeah, I think to, to fall out of love with it is, I mean, I, I didn't stop doing stand up because I fell out, fell out of love with it but I just realised it was driving me insane and I think that can happen as well mm. where are you doing your comedy up. club? I'll never give up never, they have to <laughs> drag me off stage they will, um, it's called the Prince Region and it's down Dulwich Road um, right by Hernhill Station nice. and it's that perfect uh, room for comedy where it's like a mad old great auntie's attic above a pub, oh. I mean rich great auntie obviously, but, nothing small but that is the true essence of comedy is yeah, a proper yeah. room above a pub. Big battered sofas, leather ones that like puking their innards out on the floor, and like, and you have to say things like, "Don't touch that wire; it's live." <laughs> just sit here. Of course, you can bring your dog. Type stuff. Has it got things like just old children's toys from the landlords now, yes. long grown up children, but just bits <laughs> yeah. of Playmobil houses are still there? Yeah. It's got things like that, and also they run a life drawing class up there once uh, a month, and they've done it for years. So there's always pictures of naked people just scattered around the place, forgotten, and like, I mean, it's a bit of an invasion of privacy for those models that anybody could just find their bum up there. But at least oh. it's a tasteful representation of their bum. Yeah, it usually is quite tasteful. Actually, there's been nothing to too rude nothing too risque splayed is the word I'm, I'm dodging around but you're also splayed. Uh, an author and a writer and a screenwriter and doing all kinds of things and broadcaster non- and, and broadcaster, broadcaster. <laughs> mm-hmm I was going to say one of my favourite in terms of the uh, the life model things. A lovely friend of mine, Barney, who you you probably know, Josie, West End Arts Centre in Aldershot. Oh yeah. And uh, he was doing the life class as well as running the West End Arts Centre. And then one day the model didn't turn up, and the wonderful woman who does uh, all the tech technical stuff they went oh I'll do that and then Barney was like oh no but I've known her for ages so I can't so he <laughs> kind of had to try and sketch without looking as well so it was very very Francis Bacony, I believe in, in I, don't, I don't know what, what, what point I've now reached the age that other people's naked bodies are not interesting anymore yeah, I, I think I've been swimming mean. too much I've now reached a point where, like if a naked woman strolls past I'm just like alright it's weird isn't it like in my 20s I spent so much time feeling 
so kind of fraught about my mm. own nakedness. And now, yeah, now, yeah. I oh think my God, my really... armpit's a bit saggy. Oh God, I'll never find love. Whereas now like, I'm just like, here I am, world. This I is got... me. In fact, we were making, so um, we're both filmmakers and writers. And uh, we, last week I was making, me and my friends made a, I'm going to say gorilla. We foisted upon the world a thing that we're making a film. And um, in it, I had to take my trousers off because I was coming back from this night at this protest where I'd end up getting stuck out and I was supposed to be like really distraught and really in pain. And I... That sounds like such a Josie plot line. <laughs> You're coming back and you've planned it wrongly. So there's... Yes, I'm exactly. stuck. I'm locked out. And I was had to take my trousers off and... Um, it was such a weird experience to like, I felt so vulnerable. I felt like a little plucked chicken mm. doing it on screen. But it was also like this amazing liberating thing where I suddenly realised like, oh, I haven't shaved my legs for two legs. Oh, well, that's uh, for two weeks. Oh, but that makes sense for the character. So that's fine. Oh, um, my belly is really bloated and my pants are really big. Oh, no, but that's fine as well. And like, but again, like taking off my trousers in front of like my friend who I've been making films with, who's obviously never seen me half naked and stuff like that. It's a mad little thing, mad little experience. But I sort of, I get why Lena Dunham is like, I'll just be naked all the time. It's like, yeah. once you do it, you're like, here yeah. I am. Once you do it, you can't stop doing it. Like, it's just, yeah, it's so funny because I got down to like my underwear on my first short film. But like very quickly, you're cold and uncomfortable. And like, and yes. there is a reason it's not titillating. It is to like set up a joke afterwards. Mm. And so like, there's just, there's just no time for anyone to care. The joke is a difficult thing, isn't it, about body shape? Like when I've done things, uh, events where if I've gone, for instance, topless, I think I'm just wobbly enough to be preposterous. I love the way Robin assumed that the joke was about my body and, in fact, it was about me being cold. But thank you, Robin, that felt very No, 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 what I'm saying is that I think when you do jokes about body, it's a difficult thing to... If you see someone very glamorous... It's much harder if the joke is about, you know what I mean? The yeah, naked yeah, yeah. jokes, whereas there's a it's certain size. It's quite binary, size. isn't it? Like, it, mm. it's like laughing at or like, or, or is it glamorous? Is it aspirational body or is it like oh, normal, yes. i.e. disgusting body? Yes. It's like, I think I think when men come out on stage and they've got like a beer belly, it's really weird. They kind of have their cake and eat it because like women aren't... Of course aren't re- they do. Of that's, course they yeah. do. That's how they get it. Women aren't really repulsed, but we all understand that that's a silly body. But yeah. they'll still they'll still like get enough sexual attention because I think women do overlook a belly. I was doing I a love gig a big where fat guy. <laughs> Dream Boys had been a couple of days before, and then Brian Cox was there, so it was all you know very themed. Mm. But <laughs> Dream Boys and hearing about what the uh, audience is like and their reaction to all of these Dream Boys, and apparently the Dream yeah. Really, yeah, they get really. It really sounded quite horrible. Not necessarily what happened on stage, but the, that bit where you go. Anyway, when I was cleaning up afterwards, and you go. Uh, uh, so we've we've covered obviously a lot of the uh, the nature of naturism in uh, stand up comedy and beyond. I of course <laughs> did the balloon dance out in South Africa, night after night, fascinatingly uh, ghastly. That was me and Malcolm Hardy and Liberating uh, Martin Moore. Um, not really, because I'd literally just get to the end of doing, hey, I'm doing my edgy satirical set. Now I'm standing in my socks, holding balloons across over my genitals. Um, I always found that on nights when like, we'd do stand-up and then Jigsaw, my sketch group, would do sketches afterwards because like stand-up, you sometimes need a little bit of dignity just for make people Yes, people to need you. to trust you. But with sketch, it's just ridiculous. And you just like throw your dignity aside and like there's props and you're just making an ass of yourself. And we'd always have to do sketch after stand-up because if we did sketch oh, yeah. first and then you came out and you're like, mm-hmm. the thing I've been thinking about Brexit is everyone's like... <laughs> <laughs> I saw you pretend to shoot yourself. We saw you clown. You're a clown. Yeah, you're a clown. <laughs> Didn't try and be anything else. That Sorry. was uh, Alexi Sell, who uh, has recently been on this podcast. But on another podcast, he was talking about uh, when they were all starting stand-up and just not really knowing what the rules were because it was different to a lot of the things that had immediately gone before them. And one night, Rick Mayle went out dressed as, uh, I think it was as a squirrel, or it might have been a rabbit. And uh, and it was hilarious for five minutes, but he had to do a 90-minute show. Mm-hmm. And for the other 85 minutes, it was impossible because... He was a man dressed as a squirrel, and therefore all the authority. Yeah, yeah. You can end dressed as a squirrel, but opening as a squirrel, a lot of pressure. Mm. But yeah. then Bridget Christie did a whole show. Oh no, she did half a show dressed as an ant. She did. I think I remember having a conversation with her where she said it was tricky. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she'd be like everyone should do the ant technique because it's <laughs> such an easy show. Oh, I'd love it if there were like brochures of uh, what I'm trying to say, like manuals for how to be a comedian. Yes. They were like the ant technique, the rule of three, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> 
fucking hell. Oh, the rule of three. Oh, the rule of three. People are obsessed with that. Like, that's the only thing you could learn about comedy writing. People do it in anecdotes all the time, though. It's just like a natural way that human beings talk. It's just, it, it is hilarious, though, the way it's used. Like, remember that? It was like, remember, it was like two days ago. But those uh, those judges who um, uh, did the, oh. the Brexit ruling and, like, the third one, the worst one, is the openly gay ex-fencer, ex-Olympic fencer. And I was like, you know what you're doing with that rule of three. Mm. I, I, I've got a plan that I've just thought of about three days ago, which is that I'm going to get some Wiccans and Druids and Satanists and mediums and spiritualists and anyone who practices any sort of spiritualism or hokum or whatever. My mum knows a woman. Thank you. Get her in. Tarot, crystals, I want shit She's like that. She's done our readings a couple of times. She's unreliable. But, you can't <laughs> but I want to get a group of, and also every faith possible, mm-hmm. together. And I want people to set curses and do devil, uh, exorcist style things. Everyone to do their version of either exorcising the demons or cursing and banishing all around the offices of the Daily Mail and the Sun. I want to do it for like a full day and film it because I feel so powerless and so frustrated by them. And I'm not a violent person. And much as I think about the angry brigade or whatever, I I don't think it's necessarily (laughs) called for. But. If I could put some sort of psychic hex onto those places and then those places were to cease because of that psychic hex, I don't think the law can touch me. It wouldn't even be me. It would be a druid or whatever. Yeah. See, in one way, I like that as an idea, but in another way, if the psychic hex does work, it could damage some of the science broadcasting I do <laughs> because it may well reveal that there's a paucity of, uh, mm. of uh, accuracy <laughs> in it. Um, so we'll... We should start off by talking about your... Look at Robin trying to get from ghosts and the paranormal now round to books. Well, I have got a great book in my bag because we were going to... We haven't got time, but we we were going to talk about some of our favourite books and there's this great book that Stuart Lee's written the intro for and I'll see if I can find it. I know I'm away away from the mic. Uh, Have I mentioned this before? The Living Stones, Cornwall. And I don't quite know how to pronounce her name. It's Ethel Colquhoun and it's kind of psychogeography. Colquhoun? She was a a surrealist painter and then went on to write apparently some quite impenetrable novels as well. And it's her kind of travelling around Cornwall trying to find uh, an art space that she wants. And it's really, they brought out that one and there's another one that she wrote about Ireland. And, um, And she moved into, I think, Perhaps, you know, Wiccan and uh, witchcraft territories. I'll get her to whack a curse on. She's mm. not around anymore. Well, I mean, she might still be. She may have lost her, her physical embodiment, but that's not to say that in, you know, if you get the right food stuff, because, of course, you used to tempt ghosts out, yeah, didn't you, with, with food, different yeah. forms of food. Yeah. What, yeah. what attracted ghosts the best? Well, I can tell you that it wasn't apple puree. Okay. There was well, that's no good change. news for babies. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a terrible magnet. Okay. Oh, she died in 1988. Yeah, okay, fine. I'll bring her out. I'll get her out of retirement. Mm. I'm not being childish, but the f- what, what is that on the front cover? <laughs> it's her own work, phallic, so don't... Yes, it may oh, come have... Come on, it is a bit phallic. <laughs> Sorry, Stuart Lee. I'm sure it's really good, though. It looks great. It's uh, It's got some beautiful... Uh, just the valley of streams and moon leaves, wet scents and all the cries with the owl's voice and all that flies with a bat's wing. Peace, influences, essences, presences, whatever is here, in my name of a stream in a valley, I salute you. I share this place with you. Stirrings of life, expanding spores, limbo of germination. For all you give me, I offer thanks. Oh, rooted here without time, I bathe in you. Genius of the fern-loved gully, do not molest me, and may you remain forever unmolested. That's a little taster. That's beautiful. And apparently they've not been in print for ages. And uh, Peter Owen, who was the original publisher, and I think, I don't know how well, you know, how Stuart was involved initially, but he's written the introduction to this and The Crying of the Wind. And it's just... Wow. Mm. I can... So anyway... Are they both that... set in Cornwall? No, the, this is the, Cornwall, the other one's in Ireland, and apparently has quite a different feel to it. Um, I might get it for my boyfriend because I won't let him live in his home where he wants to. Oh, what? Is he wants to live in Cornwall? In... No, he'd that... love to live in Ireland, but... Um... Oh, right. Not going to happen, mate. Here's a book for your memories. Here's a book. You know how you want to live in Ireland? This is a book about Ireland. It's basically the same thing, isn't it? I want to be near my mum in Watford. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what? I don't think she ever wrote a book about Watford. I I tried to write a little bit the other day about the brutalism of Watford. Because I kind of find it quite interesting when the brutalism is knocked down and replaced with kind of unpleasant consumerism where you go, I think I preferred it when it was concrete and went, there's Argos in here, as opposed to there's Argos in here. Mm. It's starting to look like an airport. 
the whole thing. It's really weird. Although Casterbury Park is still amazing. It's just this gigantic park that like planning developers would like give their legs or probably someone else's legs to like build houses on it and they can't I'm not allowed to touch it. And it's beautiful. Should we start by with your first book that you wrote, which was autobiography? Yeah. Oh and, yeah. That's um, um why that was that oh, no. was about four is that all right? No, no, I you were saying you didn't bring it and I was like you don't need to bring yeah, it we're just talking about it. it I mean it's an audio medium and I've already nearly broken my back bringing all these fucking books so we're going to make sure we get through all of those don't worry oh, we're not going to we're not going to create sciatica in your life without also, there being some reward I'm sorry that it's taken us so it, it, I mean it always does take us a long time to oh, don't be sorry get to speaking to our guests but like it's really exciting to have you on because you've written so much but I know obviously we did uh, English literature at university together and so I know that like you're a long time lover of literature and reading as well but also I know that you were just saying that you're studying screenwriting as well so like there's loads of things I want to talk to you about yeah I've been like um, a proper autodidact for like the last three or four years which wow. is weird because at university I was like I just didn't learn enough at all I was just the whole time I was like everyone's rich and I'm poor and at some oh, point like oh why didn't you just get over it no, but it's hard to get over it. Like, I completely understand that. It's like I've I had felt exactly the same thing where you just feel totally overwhelmed by what seems to be everyone else's advance. Uh, mm. It seems to be everyone else's kind of uh, head start over you when actually it's just oh, it's confidence. It's such a head start. It is confidence, you know? isn't it? And well, it is a like, bit of a head it's start. It's also parents, I think, who are like, yeah. what do you think about that? Whereas mine would be oh. like, shush and eat your tea. I'm, oh, like, I'm 18, I've got opinions. You do not have opinions. My mum tried to make me um, vote for my dad in the referendum because my dad doesn't have a vote because he's Dutch and doesn't want to be English. So mum said I had to vote for him in the referendum, um, vote for Brexit. He wanted to Brexit, but he's Dutch. Yeah. Oh, it's fun, Oh, isn't I it? mean, I don't even know where to begin, but the other day I had to say to her, it's not pronounced Brexit, and it's really fucking me off. I tell you what, isn't it fun growing up in Zone 6 and its environs, like the, <laughs> the cultural wasteland that is... Oh, you of... are Zone 6, aren't you, Watford? Yeah, yeah. 6B, possibly, yeah. I, I hate trashing it. I feel really bad, because actually my first book, it, it was about having to... So I started writing a blog when I had to go and live with my parents when I was 28, which actually then afterwards a lot of people started having to do because the economy is just hating anyone under 40 or 40 grand a year. And um, and I did slag off Watford a fair bit because I wasn't very happy when I was there. And that was partly Watford, but it was mainly me. I carried my own misery with me as like a gloomy little child. Um, and But yeah, so I did feel a bit bad. And then my second book is sort of set in somewhere a bit like Watford. But is it a- positive in the second one or is it still... Not the best place for it. Your second book is, is teenage fiction. Yeah and, yeah. and in the US and your original title, Goldfish. Yes, yeah, it was Goldfish and now it's Girl Out of Water. Uh, and it's got and it's been translated into about four French, German and Italian. Um, and they've got different titles. What are they God called? Knows. I, I can't even pronounce it. <laughs> there's like Moi et les Aqua Boys. Amazing. Um, and there's uh, <laughs> Lou Brown and her Mana Ballet. I was like, what's Mana Ballet? And the German woman was like, it's very funny. And I was like, <laughs> okay. thanks, mate. <laughs> but do, do you know what I feel like? I, I think you, you had a similar experience to me in terms of like going to school whereby it was sort of in a different social class to your parents and your upbringing mm. and stuff. And like, I, I was, I went to grammar school and it's a, a similar thing of like, of course you did. They yeah, teach yeah. you to dislike your background and they teach you to feel superior to your background. But also, it's kind of this weird double edged sword because they almost teach you that where you are isn't good enough for you and you've got to get out of there. Yeah. So you have this weird conflicting feeling. And on top of it, you know, I would say both of where we're from is, you know, quite conservative, not a place that's full of art and culture, you know. And that's not to do those places down there. Also, got loads of wonderful points to them. Mm. So it's been like quite a long process over the past sort of 15 years trying to kind of get back a sense of like respect for the good parts of it and yeah. appreciation for what it actually is where I'm from and do you know what I mean trying oh, to come I to know some you sort mean of peace so, with it I, I was a scholarship kid and, and that was during the assisted places scheme as well and I think the whole thing with like scholarship kids or kids who get into grammar school is like you're a diamond in the rough yes you're alright <laughs> fuck all them get you're off. a little flower in the weed dump of where you're from <laughs> and obviously as a child you're just hugely egotistical so you're like I am 
Welcome. I'm special. You take that lesson in so readily when they're like, where you're from is a pack of shit, mate, but you're special and rare. And you're like, bye, father, bye, mother. I'm off to reclaim my heritage. Yes. And like, it took me so long. Like when we were at university, I didn't let my parents come and visit because I was so embarrassed because they were poor and they were like, oh, God. And it still burns me up with shame that they, but still like I did finally in third year, I was like, okay, you can come and visit me. And mum was like, right, where's the nearest Weatherspoons? And I was like, back in the car, everyone back in the car. This is why you can't visit. But I think that uh, you decided it was because, you know, you, you felt the, the background poor. I think at that age, there's loads of different. I mean, I, I was I was the same for the opposite reason, because my dad wore a cravat, etc. You think, <laughs> oh, no, all my friends are from a different you know back, background, which is yeah. would, would not have been as as, uh, as as posh as my background. So there's always a, at between the ages of 18 and 39. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but also, my new thing forever is keep it complex make it more complex yeah like i i'm trying so hard to do that i feel like in terms of my writing in terms of my stand-up i was trying to get to places where i felt very clear and singular mm. about what i wanted to say whereas now i'm always up for going like let's just explode it all again and fuck around with it a bit that's more. why i was getting so sick of my stand-up because people kept saying like keep it simple pair it back make mm. it really really simple and i'd have jokes that were just like man fall down and I'd be like, what am I doing? This yeah, is really who's, boring. Who was saying that? Um, well, I suppose... Um, well, I don't really want to name names because then it's other comics. No, well, sorry, like I don't mean... But, but what, bad, so it was but, other comics. Where, yeah. and, and was this because within a 20-minute environment it was considered that you were... Not It was requiring it. too much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, that I would... I remember when I first started watching stand-up uh, and it was, it was before I was doing it and I would watch Mark Watson actually up the creek and Mark Watson would compare and he would have all these little, like, diversions and all these little, like... And it was like a laugh every... A couple of times in every sentence but you had to be listening for it and it was always, like, you know, spider diagramming around the place. And so that's kind of a style that I just it took on board, I think. And so that was was my style in a way there was lots of going off at little tangents um but now watching stand-up as someone who isn't a stand-up i do appreciate a bit of a sense of when someone's got a through line mm-hmm. it's really basic isn't it but it's just it's a bit like with a film you're like i want to know where i am in the film yes. because if it suddenly like swings into act two and you're two hours in you're like oh god uh-huh. oh god i've not i've not got a cat sitter this is stressing me out now i don't know how long i'm being held hostage yeah um so yeah, it is nice to like be more complex, I think. And that's why I love the film Something Weird. Something that's wild rather, not something weird, oh. something weird. Something weird's a Herschel Gordon Lewis film who died recently, the director of Blood Feast. But Sometimes uh, some Robin, th- a man can know too much and it just something- trips him up. All of it is utterly useless. <laughs> oh, uh, no, my dad said the other day, he said, How do you remember that you ate kidneys at that hotel we stayed in when you were twelve? I went, I don't know, Dad, but I still don't understand the fundamentals of physics. So You're um, one of you you're like one of those people who can't forget. Yeah, it's, and it's not a good forget. thing. I genuinely think that... It, it, you, anyway, but let's not go there. This is... Uh, I'm not on the couches yet. Um, the... Uh, what were we talking about? The, blah, 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 well, blah, we were oh, Something Wild. Something Wild is this is a film where the first half is a kind of, hey, yuppie goes on an adventure thing. Uh, Melanie Griffith uh, kind of kidnaps this guy, Jeff Daniels, and it's all fun. And then the second uh, half is a really suspenseful... Ray Liotta, quite remarkable. His greatest performance ever. But you know that bit where you go, hey, I thought I was having fun. And now we're in a lot of jeopardy and the screwball's fucking gone now. That's that's kind of what I love about us. I think that's a great thing to do. It's really interesting, though. But like having so I basically taught myself screenwriting like two years ago. And like tone is really, really important. And like and it's so good if you can have the tone slightly drifting. But it's so dangerous. And mostly I think people try and keep a consistent tone because it's so risky, which Mm. I, you know, so when you see a film where the tone travels, but it's fun, then that's great. We've had exactly the same experience. So me and my friends, it's funny because we're sort of, doing the same thing in different ways I think and yeah. so I, I, I'm sort of trying to learn by doing which means that the products might well end up being mistakes but hopefully hopefully I'm learning through it and me and my friends just shot a, a feature where we shot it before and after a summer and before the summer it's a mumblecore film and after the summer there's been a military coup and it's like <laughs> a terrifying escape but we we were so fascinated by this idea of dropping all these self like self-involved like mumblecore characters 
into this action film That's and trying to make idea. it but the thing that we've had over the last couple of weeks is constant conversations about what is the tone of this going to be do we even understand anymore I feel so confused and lost by this are we playing this as jokes are we playing this as yeah. it's exactly that it's so complicated and the only film I can really think of where it feels inspiring is there's a Korean film called The Host Yes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that's an amazing host. confusion yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of things. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it starts one place, and it just is almost as if the camera just suddenly just goes off to another direction, mm. and yeah. you have to keep going. You know. Yeah, I wonder sometimes, well, with films like that, if the fact that it is in a foreign language yeah. to us makes us sit up a bit more. It does make us pay a bit more attention, I think. Like the Bollywood rule, where you go, well, it's Bollywood. They're allowed to do this. It's allowed to be uh, right. both a musical right. and a thriller. And those. But there's Japanese story. I don't know if you've ever seen that, which is a, a, no. an Australian uh, film. Well, that's just um, confusing. With right Tony, I know it's all over the shop, mate. All over. Um, Tony Collette. And that is a film love, where love the first kind of well the first half is oh two people are put together and they don't really get on I won't tell you what happens in the middle but it is one of the most incredible changes of tone and is a great film oh my god all right, you I'm have carried all these books here though um, you, I don't, you, you've kept mentioning how heavy they are it's so, so heavy so heavy it's pathetic um, I um, yes what, what was I going to tell which one do you want to start with oh I don't know oh I'll tell you what I um, I was listening to one of your podcasts the other day and I can't, I can't remember who with I'm I'm not huh. thick, but I am forgetful. That does happen. And you were saying to someone, what was the book that they first read that made them like aware of funniness and like mm. they wanted oh, wow. to be funny? And I actually, it was it was this book that I'm holding right now and it's out of print and I had to hunt it down for so long to find it because I really wanted it. And because um, every day in the holidays, my mum would drop me off at Watford Library and she'd come get me at the end of the day. And that was just my day. And like, and I'd wander all around, I'd read it, and I'd read way too much horror, and I absolutely screwed my little brain up. What but, was the horror that you used to read? Uh, it was Stephen King. I love right. Stephen King. She did me up terribly. What's your favourite? Um, I think it is, I think it's it. Oh my God. Yeah, I'd yeah. reread that like every sort of other summer holiday. So this is Paul Sangster's The Day of Dog. The Day of Dog. And, you know, it influences all my screenwriting in particular way more than I realised. I was just reading it through the other day. And so it's about a gang of dogs who are going to be euthanised in a pound. So they need to escape. And like the leader is this, um, in my head, he's got Rick Mayle's voice. And he's this kind of um, over, overly grand and arrogant, manipulative dog who like needs all the others to, to escape the pound. It is a kid's dog. But if someone said it was an allegory, I wouldn't be surprised. Ha. So is this before see. Plague Dogs? I'm just thinking Plague Dogs, which is the Plague, Richard Adams Plague who wrote Watership Down. Uh, oh, and Plague Dogs was, was about two Ooh. dogs that were, um, uh, they're in a vivisection uh, and they Oof. escaped from the vivisection place and one of them's got a plate in its head and still has kind of fits. <gasps> oh, I've seen that. I know yeah. that. Was it turned into a film or a Yeah, it was, too? yeah. It's I a very that. distressing film. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, so this isn't fucked up like that. I'm not, I'm not about to read Watership Down because I like myself. But there's a line in it that um, I used to use all the time and I, I was like nine and totally misappropriating it. But I was like, um, ignorance isn't a venal sin, but you'd be best not to wallow in it publicly. Ooh, and I said that nice. to my mum several times I got sent to my room and I'd say it to kids at school and nobody liked me and I was like it's so funny it's quite why is it not working I know it's, it's quite Dickensian the idea of you sort of oh someone being in the library on your own like oh it's like a, oh it's like like Matilda or something yeah, oh it's just like Matilda I've got a lot of Matilda stuff at home that like yeah that, but I, I mean it made me really happy And but it's also and, local to you I see. Yeah, because yeah, this Paul Sangster has been for the last eight years principal of a Hertfordshire College of Further Education. Wow. His many interests include drama, music, theology, and dogs, and he still greatly misses his great Dane Hamlet, who, who died in 1974. The book, the book is dedicated to Hamlet, the 12th of January 1966 to the 18th of March 1974. So I, don't, I wonder if he wrote anything else. I, yeah, because I don't know. I couldn't find any. Uh, any of his stuff and that book was so hard to find and it was like an like a sort of budget antiquarian's website i found it on in the end um and i paid way too much for it but it was just it's all my childhood in that book because i'd read it again and again um i'm a real rereader especially in autumn as i do Mm. all my rereading that's interesting why Mm. do you think that's the case I think it's because I go a bit nuts in summer because I really like the sunshine and we don't see enough of it. So I'm just outdoors and I'm outdoors swimming and I'm hiking and I'm walking and I'm just like out all the time. And then as soon as autumn comes, I guess I want to like curl up and read things, but things I know how they end. 
Yeah. I think that's it. And I read things like I read things like Persuasion by Jane Austen and World War Z. Wow. It's like it's that kind of combination. But so everything I write, I realise it, it is sort of a bunch of survivors in one way or another is what I write. And I think it is because of the day of dog. Wow, that's interesting. I love I, this publisher as well. Windmill Press. It's got a lovely kind of like a, a woodcut as its uh, as its little icon of a squirrel. And it's based in Tadworth. I like it's, yeah, this book. It's pretty twee, but I do like it. And it's really well written. It's got like loads of beautiful one-liners in that like, if you're a nine-year-old, you can try another nine-year-olds and not oh. get much success. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I... Uh, so I'm writing the sequel to this. So I write this, this YA novel and I'm writing the sequel to it right now and I reached 62,000 words wow. in summer and I binned it all off. And I'm starting it what? again. Is... So what was the YA novel? Tell us about that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, there was a point to that. I wasn't just like, my book. No, don't be um, silly. This is literally the point of this. Literally the point of the podcast. Um, so this, the book's called Girl Out of Water and I wrote it like a year and a half ago. And um, I was, I think that's the brokest I've ever been. Uh, a con man tried to steal my screenplay, the first one I wrote. And what? we had to get a lawyer on him. And obviously lawyers earn money so fast and I was earning it so slowly. Can I'm... we talk about that? Would you rather not? Uh, yeah, I mean, it It was, I think it was just after the BAFTA nomination and like, and I'd only ever made like one little short film. Can you just, yeah, explain a little bit more just for like, those who don't know about the BAFTA oh, nomination. Oh, this is like yeah, a yeah. box within would. boxes. Yeah, like, yeah, I know, I know. I, I get so annoyed with my mum when she tells an anecdote by beginning another one. No, and I was I like, oh, Jesus, mother. It's a romance, um, a tiroir. Oh, oh, I feel better. Um, so I made a short film for like uh, 800 quid with my mate Ben. And like sort of inexplicably out of nowhere, it was nominated for a BAFTA, which is amazing. But like, especially after like six years of slogging away at stand up and people being like, I just don't know if you're quite ready to do two minutes on Dave Plus One. And you're like, I'm so ready. And then suddenly after the nomination, people were like, so you're a professional screenwriter. And I was like... Yes, that's, <laughs> that, that's me. <laughs> Googling how to write screenplays, and um, and I, I wrote the screenplay, but just for myself. And then this guy approached me and said, "Like, what was it about?" It's about um, a girl who wakes up the morning after a house party to find a dead body on her sofa, but she knows the dead body and she doesn't like her at all, <laughs> and so it doesn't look good. And it's called Annie's Got Body Issues. Oh. Um, and uh, yeah and so a con artist nicked it basically signed a contract but never paid me a penny went around trying to like get the film made and up and running he was like he was using a fake name he's still out there under a fake name and um, bless him Andy Murray um, from Ostentatious I thought the tennis player I was like oh, this yeah, is he got exciting on board. <laughs> it's, it's no less exciting because Andy's a lovely Andy man Murray, yeah. but he was working for the Evening Standard and he got them to, to like investigate the story and he'd been this guy had been ripping off like men mentally disabled people and like um, and loads of other writers who, who are even more credulous I would imagine than people with mental disabilities because we're just like yes please buy my screenplay and so I had to get a lawyer to like kind of see him off and then Duncan from Blue the boy band Blue of course wanted to play the male lead and he said a mate of his was interested in funding it he was a Russian oligarch so we spent about six months hanging out with the Russian oligarch but the Russian oligarch is now doing six months in a Spanish prison for identity theft because not even Russian and definitely not an oligarch. Oh my God. <laughs> but on the plus side, one Valentine's, the only Valentine's text I got was from Duncan from Blue and 15 year old me went squee. So hang on. So there was a fake oligarch. Yeah. Who's the fake oligarch? Still don't know who he was. Lovely man. We went to see him in his office in the middle of town, which I now realise probably wasn't his office. Um, which this is fucked so up. weird and drove us around in a Bentley and took us for lunch where like steaks were 70 pounds. And he and, paid like, for them. He paid for them. With someone else's credit With card. With someone actually. else's credit card. It was so bizarre to me. But like my stupid little head was so turned. I was so unworldly. Wait, if someone was buying me a 70 quid steak, I wouldn't be like, um, please can you just show me your passport? I just yeah, need to make sure. I need to verify some things. But I'd already been taken in by another con artist. So I... Bloody oh, God. And so, so desperate. And my, my literary agent, bless her, said, write a, a, a young adult novel. And I was like, Helly, I haven't really got time. I'm trying to earn some money, mate. And she was like, no, dickhead, you could earn some money if you wrote a funny YA novel. So I like dried my tears, yeah. sat in a coffee shop for five weeks and I just wrote it all wow. beginning to end and then worked on it a bit more over the year. And then like that 
that got sold in a two book deal and then to five countries and so like for the last two years I've been earning money like an actual human being which I hadn't for a very long time for your art as well for my art I know it's been lovely I've not left the house in ages (laughs) Um, tell us a bit about the plot of the YA novel so it's about a girl who um, is training to be an Olympic swimmer and that's her dream and that's all she's going to do and then she just isn't fast enough and, and like, that, that happened to me. And at 15, you're just like, you're just not good enough. Like, you are good, but not good enough. And you're like, oh, okay. And so it's about, like, dealing with the fallout of that. And she starts training some boys in underwater synchronized swimming. And they enter, like, a TV talent show. And they, they become underwater synchronized swimmers. And... um and I and I, I love it. I, I really like the book. It's it's long listed for an award right now, which is like it's always very tense, isn't it? Because then when the short list is announced and you're not on it, you're like, I wish I'd never known. Yes, I, <laughs> I wish I'd never that. known. Um, but yeah, so I wrote the sequel, and it was fun and it was silly. Um, but like just sort of looking at the way like the world is just like collapsing all around us, I thought. I think I'd probably I'd rather write something that might give a teenage kid some heart and some hope. Like the first book, she's very big and gangly and she's not pretty and she's not popular. And she's got all these problems that she's dealing with. And I think that's quite encouraging to a little kid. And her dad is unemployed. And that really stresses her out throughout the whole book, although it is a comedy. And so in the second book, it was about a prom and it was just like silly and fun and lighthearted. And at 62,000 words, I was like, I do not give a shit about this. So I've binned it off and I'm starting again. And now both her parents are unemployed and it's about like they have to go to a food bank and life is very difficult and they've got no money. But like but they've got each other. And so, it, you know. Wow. And I hope that gives, like, it would be lovely if just even one kid who was going through something similar read that and was like, it's going to be okay. Life I is long. I like, reading um, Jacqueline Wilson when I was about 11, 12, and my, my parents were breaking up and, like, is it Jacqueline Wilson that I'm thinking of? This, she wrote The Suitcase Kid. Yeah, she I think Tracy Jacqueline Beaker Wilson. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 that's her, yeah. And there was, oh, maybe I was younger than that, but I, I remember it feeling really, um, yeah, like a balm mm. to be like, oh, I'm not alone, like. You know, genuinely. Yeah, it feels like your best friend when you're a kid, doesn't it? Like, yeah. So that's what I wanted. And I thought, what a golden opportunity. And why would I squander it by having them go to prom? When actually, I don't agree with prom. I think it makes ugly kids and poor kids feel like rubbish. So, yeah. yeah. When did you realise? I mean, you said you got 62,000 words. But was there a point where you look back now and you go, do you know what? About 20,000 words. I had a sticky feeling at 20,000. At 58, I had a distinctly eggy feeling. But I was going through quite a lot of personal turmoil at the time because um, my um, cat had been taken into fostering by my parents. So we, you know, it was a difficult time. And I was handing my cat over and I was feeling very conflicted emotionally. It was lonely. It was really difficult. And her little toys were everywhere and her litter was still all over the flat. Um, And. But now I'm better. I'm over that now. She's much happier. Um, yeah, I think I, I was just a bit like, let's just get it done. Because Walker were like, if if you don't think this is a series of books you want to do, Walker's my publisher. They were like, maybe we'll look at another series of books. So I, I came up with an idea of like a teenage girl who is just starting to get like a, a body. And she's like quite a stocky black girl. And she gets boobs very quickly and a bum. And men yell at her things in the street. And then she dies suddenly one day in a car crash and becomes a ghost and actually really enjoys being invisible and not having anyone making comments about her body anymore. Wow. It's a little bit bleak. It's called Big Dead Girl. But um, but it's still a comedy. And I, I think I was thinking of that and I wanted to get onto that one. And actually, this is this is a guaranteed book that I must write and it must be good. So, yeah. We've nearly out of time. We've oh only God, gone through sorry. one of your I books. No, 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 it's fine. We, we better it's just go through. Because yeah. we haven't oligarch. gone through your, your heaviest books yet. Oh, my heaviest so books. So the heaviest such an books. Idiot. So you were saying that what you've done is you've basically cribbed the bibliography from film writing courses in order to teach yourself. Well, that's what I did two years ago. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, I taught myself screenwriting through like cribbing the bibliography of screenwriting courses. And so then this year, I'm now moving into directing. So now I'm reading the bibliography of the directing course at NFTS because I cannot afford the directing course at NFTS. Yeah, but this is I, like genuinely for people listening, you, what's really exciting is you, any of you can do this. Like, yeah. if you, uh, I mean, I would always say if you can go to university, please do go because it's wonderful and your intellect has no price on it. But at the same time, 
you can crib the reading lists for whichever degree you want from somebody yeah. and you can find the books yourself, you know, without even having to buy them. And you can give yourself a grounding in lots of these things. And it's so cool that that's... And also, like, you know, there's absolute um, treasure trove of lectures um Online. Absolutely. There's so many free things online. There's podcasts, screenwriting podcasts, directing podcasts. Like, And sometimes you can just get in touch with someone. Like, I yes. I shadowed Damon Beasley on set when he was um, directing a sitcom the other day. And like, and he kept saying, like, sorry, this is really boring. And I was like, it's really interesting. Like, even down to, like, little things that, like, he's not joking around on set. It's a comedy, but actually he keeps it all quite, like, low, low-key. And, like, that's, that's interesting because I never quite know. And when I'm directing... I wonder if I need to keep my actors like laughing or up or like and actually no we're all professionals and you just and Woody Allen find... apparently doesn't talk to them at all who doesn't wow. Woody Allen almost says nothing to <laughs> oh, so I bet yeah. there was, I was chatting to someone who was in at least one of his films maybe two in fact uh, uh, an English actor and she said that um, you just suddenly have a, a pause and then he'd wander over to a chessboard and he'd look at it for a while and then he'd move something then they'd just do another take Oh, my God. Oh God. We should say, by the way, Damon Beasley is the uh, co-creator of The Inbetweeners yes. with Ian Morris. Sorry, yes. Jason. No, me and my... Fr- when, uh, what I found, like, little things making a thing last week, I am still obsessed with it because we only finished yesterday, um, is I find the actors muck about a bit and then my, my friend, the director, just is able to kind of kindly parent yeah. us to <laughs> yeah. focus, you know, in a way that feels... So do, do you sort of see yourself as like a bit of an auteur, like writing and uh, directing and... Um... Yeah, I know it's a really wank word, but no, it's, it's one I'd one. really it's like amazing. to use. Yeah, um, yeah, and I've written a feature recently that um, I want to write, direct and act in. Wow, what's that so about? It's called The Clean Up, and it's about three women in their 30s, old school friends, who um, find themselves stranded at a music festival in the aftermath of it. And uh, because basically I love post-apocalyptic stories, yeah. and I wanted to create a post-apocalypse on a budget, and all I could think of was after a music festival I don't know if you've ever done litter picking for a free ticket it's so grim and it really is proper like survival training type stuff because there's just nothing there anymore it's just you and a bunch of like eco saviors and students and you're just like living off what you remembered to bring um yeah. so yeah and it's really i remember grim. the first time after reading festival trying to just scavenge see what we could yeah. find we found a we djembe. found so many drugs on the floor but it's oh just like God. i'm just not quite reckless enough to take these yes fair enough yeah that, um Oh, well. We do need Let to get me, through yeah, these books. Sorry, we have three sorry. minutes left. Oh God! Right. So these are the books I've been reading. I've the, these were the best ones out of the list I cribbed. I was reading Cinematography: Theory and Practice, Image Making for Cinematographers, Directors, and Videographers by Blaine Brown. Guys, it's as dry as it sounds, ha! but <laughs> it is really like good for you and interesting and useful. And occasionally, when it gets really, really in depth about lenses, you're like, I think I can leave that bit. I and will pair up it. with a DOP. <laughs> exactly. I'm like DOP's thing, really. And then there's Film Art and Introduction by David Bordwell and Kristen Thompson, which I'm sure if you went to film school, it's like me saying, like, it's the Riverside Chaucer. <laughs> like, uh, basic. Well, I've got to begin with the basics because I'm teaching myself. And it, it even smells like a textbook. Well, it's also, really there's good. no shame in that. Like, I think people mm. are taught to, like, you know, turn themselves off and beat themselves up. Yeah. And actually, it's like... Definitely. Yeah, Do you know what's interesting as well is with a couple of these books, um, especially this really like old one, The Film Sense by Sergei Eisenstein, is if I'd have read that at film school at 19, I'd have been like, I don't understand. I'm so stupid. And now I've like I've written two published books and I'm like, mm, you could have expressed this more clearly. Ha! Uh, no, you're this saying is that you about Eisenstein? Uh, how dare you? One well, of the greatest lines like... from the Magic Roundabout. <laughs> Dougal's trying to make a film. And he says, I bet this never happened to Sergei Eisenstein. <laughs> that was the kind of thing Eric Thompson used to put in. Yeah. But there's a, I think it's a little bit of a class thing as well. Like, it takes, it, it sometimes takes, sorry, it sometimes takes, you know, a good decade Yeah. if you're not from privilege. I feel like a accept- decade behind, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, if I'd have been middle class, that, like, that, that it takes so long now for me to be like, actually, I do know what I'm doing, and if I don't, I can learn. Yeah. Um, and if yeah. I can't learn, it's not the end of the world. No. I'm not the worst human being alive. Exactly. Like, I'm not the thickest and I'm not the cleverest. And that's fine. Yeah. I don't need to be either of I'm those things. i yeah. what, So what's this one? This one is really interesting, actually. This is, in the blink of an eye, a uh, perspective on film editing. Because what I found really interesting was, like, 
I think, I don't think, this has been said so many times, but you write a film three times. You write the screenplay, you shoot it, and you edit it. 100%. So it's really interesting to learn about the cinematographer's part of it, which is step number two, and the editor's part of it as well. So that's why I now write much better. Um, I've written three screenplays this year, and you can see the third one is better than the first one because I read all these books in between, and sure. I get where the edit points will be, and I get what will make a better edit. And I think I'm just helping the people around me make a better film with less pushing and shoving on their part that like I'm kind of meeting them halfway I think what's the thing about the blink there's a certain uh, cut that can be done that makes someone blink yes and, and there's a use for it because Walter Murch is, is the um, Walter Murch is a myth, very like brown famous noise, is it? no it's no, 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 no this is I used by was... film editors Robin, and... I was literally talking to Doug about this the other day it's a sound isn't it it's like consonant that's it it's sounds. a sound yeah really? you can, yeah my friend was talking about this with me because so I I'm lacking awe of the fact that you want to do all of these things because what I've learned is that my personality type is feckless and pathetic. <laughs> so I like writing and I like acting in it because I'm like, my special fun. But it's actually... so weird with, with writing and acting though is because you write the script, then you hand it to a director yeah. and then you turn up on the day on set and like if a set has been built as well, you're standing in what should have been what you imagined in your mind. But how can it be? Because they weren't in your mind, you were. And it's that step in between that actually really disconcerted me and made me go, I think I better do everything. Ha! <laughs> You see, whereas I'm quite like, I'm the boss, I'm the boss, I'm the boss. And then as soon as it gets to shooting, I'm like, I'm a tiny cog, you were the boss. And I really enjoy that. And also, like, I, I when I was younger, I used to really think I wanted to direct, but I'm too lazy and too short of attention span. I don't have the precision and the thought to think about the shots and to think about things in those times. And editing, especially, I remember saying to my friend Douglas, who's the director that I work with, was um, I was like, I really want to be in the edit because I feel like I need exactly that yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to be part of the creative process from start to finish. I was in the edit for 20 minutes (laughs) and by the end of 20 minutes I was like I don't care I'm so bored (laughs) oh my god I sat in on the sound edit and like (gasps) oh my god it's so long it's so lengthy and that was on a short film but like but see I think this is this is what makes me so much better about my life choices lately is because as a stand-up I was never good at that kind of like just being silly and improv and messing around just get your inner clown out like I don't have an inner clown but when it comes to things like um like being precise and doing a shot list and things like that like actually that's much more my personality type and I love that so instead of feeling like an uptight not cool clown I'm like no it's fine that's just not what I am when people are like hey just just mess about and I'm the uh, Antipolsky would say that to me with jigsaw things I'm like I'm not really a mess about a person I want to know what I'm doing it's interesting isn't it I, there's always what? that thing what uh, he's he's written it up it's it's behind oh. you it's acoustic startle reflex eye blink oh my god this is like this is the future acoustic startle reflex eye blink beautiful name for a girl or ass reb <laughs> and Walter Murch, who is the uh, author of In the Blink of an Eye, is uh, was also the uh, sound designer, uh, editor, I think, as well, of uh, Conversation, The Conversation, American Graffiti, Julia, Apocalypse Now, Godfather Part 2 and Part 3, amongst many other things. And if you are ever interested in uh, the other podcast that I make, which is, uh, well, it's not a podcast, it's the, the Shortcuts. If you ever look at Shortcuts, we did a very, very interesting interview with Walter Murch. Oh, uh, really? This is so weird. It's like you saying to be like oh yes I've been to Narnia I'm like but he's just the yeah. man in the book I didn't meet him I didn't think he was real it. no oh, I know it's amazing, amazing isn't it um, so uh, this this book is um, in the blink of an eye a, a perspective on film editing and my friend I'm sorry I'm like well my friend did this as well I'm like full of the joys of spring it's not a lot of friends it's nice. well it's exciting too because I think you know in the UK it's hard to find other people that are you know going about like trying to do filmmaking but from an independent perspective yeah you know yeah it's it's it can feel like quite a closed shop I think it's only in the last year I feel like I feel like I'm being let in but um and I'm just sort of going at it like every single different angle like I screenwrite for other people and then I script edit for other people and I screenwrite my own things and do you know what I mean it's like eventually you have to let me in and sooner or later I'll be good at it (laughs) yeah exactly exactly oh and the the final thing I read I probably read this every time I'm stuck is Stephen King on writing because I just think it's such a lovely friendly kind book um it's just it's just it's amazing about him isn't it that like he's like this master of the dark arts and yet he seems like such a gentle such a lovely man still so in love with his wife tabitha like just the loveliest man steven oh you're breaking my heart but like it's such a lovely book for just like really lovely 
practical advice and like there's so many screenwriting books that are like if by page 11 you're not hitting this and that and that you are wrong and it's like what have you written mate yeah. oh that one shit film in the 80s interesting it's like sometimes when people teach stand-up comedy courses and yeah. you look at what they're teaching you think oh there's a reason you're not a comedian isn't there you know and See, I, I don't know that not everyone I, I think I there everyone. is something about uh, John Dowie uh, who has been a guest on the show and uh, he went to see Robert McKee doing the story oh thing. yeah and I think there are people who kind of because I'm, I'm oh, not Robert entirely Robert McKee is like a different kettle of fish no no but he's he? still someone who actually yeah a couple of Columbos but he's never written a great screenplay but he's a very good observer of what and also John said a quite remarkable performer every time you can see that oh maybe the audience are just drifting off he'll suddenly go into a grand set piece that drags everyone back for this basically he said it was like a, a three day one man show wow I mean, there's a lot of money. It's quite sad in a way. There's a lot of money to be made off teaching screenwriting and like doing those seminars because there's, and this sounds horrible, but like I do, I do now lecture and I teach people screenwriting. Why is um, that horrible? Oh, insane. no, it's more that I, that there are so many people who would rather do anything than just sit down and write. Mm. And it sounds so mean, but it's not mean. It's just like they need to hear it sometimes. It's like if you've gone on like 10 seminars that year and if you've like upgraded your, your final draft software again and again and again, but what have you written? It's like, I think you just need to sit and be lonely and be bored and I'm not saying it's like bleeding your heart everywhere but sometimes it's just really boring and you just kind of have to plow through the boring and, low, and never like, as good as you want it to be no, like but, what was it the Ira Glass thing where he says you get into doing something creative because you have great taste and for a while there's such a huge gulf between what you know is good and what you're making mm. and you have to kind of live with that and accept that you're narrowing that gap bit by bit and a lot of people can't can't bear it that they're such connoisseurs of fine films and then they make their first short film and it's just a big old farty mess and also before you make something whatever it is you want to make is this perfect platonic yeah. thing and then when you make something it's just another thing in the world you know mm-hmm. and you have to cope with that but it's still worth it and like that's what I've, I've found with like my friends like we sat down and we because we had an experience where for two years we developed a screenplay with some producers and we really thought it was going to get made and then it wasn't made and it was real kick in the teeth like confidence wise really depressing oh, yeah. and then we were just like the only way we're going to get better is by doing and we have to just decide that we're going to make these things off our own back for nothing and if they're terrible they're terrible but we will learn and we will get a five-year plan going and in five years we've made five films and one of them might not be shit yeah you know and that's what that's all you can do and i think it's such a good idea and you're right like you you can be developing something perfect for like five years who cares if no one's ever gonna see it like even when it's a script like i love scripts and i read them all the time but it's not the same thing and it's you know people are not going to read that you have to make it and get it out Mm -hmm. there and like and we're so lucky that there's so much like digital um filmmaking equipment that you can just like point a camera at something and, and just make something and Jesse Thorne who runs uh, Max Fun yeah. uh, the podcasting network he does this lecture sporadically which I don't know whether it's available anywhere but if not just look out and it's called Make Your Thing and I would really recommend it like to people listening who like do have any sort of creative dreams it's like it's so enabling you know mm-hmm. and sometimes I think you do just need someone to be like Get on with it in the real world, you know? Yeah, Give yeah, it a go. Yeah. Right, that's it. We've run out of time. Uh, we've gone over, in fact. So uh, thank you very much for listening to uh, Book Shambles. Uh, you can find out about all the books that have been talked about on cosmicgenome.com forward slash shambles and also find out about the Australian New Zealand tour at cosmicshambleslive.com. We're going to Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. Uh, we'll thank everyone who... We won't thank everyone. We'll thank some of the people who support us on, on Patreon and on PayPal. And don't forget, at the end of this message, you will find out who's won this week's box of books. So thank you very much to Anastasia Holtam. Thank you very much to Paul Harris, to Innes McLeod, to Rebecca Dyer, to Stephanie Stair. Thank you to Kevin, Patrick and Denise Wales, to Andrew McDonald and to Carly Edmonton. And I'm allowed to announce the box of books. Have you done the PayPal people as well? Thank you to the people who played. (laughs) Thank you to the people who paid for PayPal. Joe Hobbs, Roseanne May. And Rachel Foote and John Dowie as well, who's also been a guest. What a lovely thing to do. Uh, And so thank you very much for listening. And uh, the Box of Books winner is... Julia Mariani. Thank you, Ms Mariani. Thank Thank you for the round of applause, Thank you for joining us. And uh, I hope that the next 62,000 words (laughs) are ones that you enjoy enough uh, for them to remain. So brave. It's fucking cool. Thanks Thanks. very much. Bye-bye. Thanks, mate.
And if you were the winner of our Patreon Box of Books prize, then the best way to get in contact with us is either via our Twitter account, which is at Cosmic Genome, or you can go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles, have a look on that page, and you'll be able to contact us there so we can get your address and send the books to you. Thanks. Bye. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. (laughs) 